You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This episode features discussions of what happened to the dinosaurs, whether viruses are alive, whether people evolved from monkeys, and other topics in life sciences. Let's have a listen. All right, there was a question here, what happened to the dinosaurs? Um, well, gosh, so far as people can tell, uh, the um, so f- first point is, for a long time, di- dinosaurs were only comparatively recently discovered. People had thought, you know, there might be dragons and things, and there'd been sort of stories about how there were dragons, um, but nobody really knew about that. And then in the 1800s, 150 years ago or something, people really started systematically finding fossils. And they found fossils that were kind of reminiscent of, of dragons, and those were fossils of dinosaurs. And it was only, only in the 1800s that um, uh, sort of the idea that there had been these large creatures that lived a long time ago really uh, sort of emerged. And it became clear that the dinosaurs had lived up until about 65 million years ago, and then they disappeared. And for a long time, when I was a kid, it was like, why had the dinosaurs disappeared? Answer, because the dinosaurs are reptiles, they're cold-blooded, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Along, people had said, had come the mammals, and the mammals were just a much better uh, collection of critters, and we're, of course, mammals, and it's like, we were the winners, the dinosaurs were the losers. And it was just like the mammals, there were all kinds of stories about the mammals ate the dinosaur eggs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's why the dinosaurs died out. Uh, That was the story. And there were these people, I knew them, they were physicists, who said, actually, there's another possibility. The possibility is maybe an asteroid hit the Earth and uh, and caused the Earth to get really cold for a couple of years um, because it threw a bunch of dust up into the atmosphere and that covered the sun and things got really cold and the dinosaurs died out as a result of that. And at the beginning, this looked like a completely crazy theory because it seemed like, you know, why would anybody think that would happen? And um, uh, it, was, it was just all, all looked very implausible. And then what was discovered was that all over the Earth, there's this tiny layer, I think it's of iridium, osmium, I I'm, I'm don't completely remember, of a, very, of a rare chemical, rare element, that exists as a little, little layer that you can find if you dig down in rocks. And you find, so when, you know, when rocks... Uh, form, they tend to be in these layers where the most recent rocks are on top and the earlier rocks are underneath. So you can get kind of an idea of what's how old by sort of digging down and seeing what layer you hit what at. And so what happened is the, um, uh, there's this layer all over the earth of these unusual, this unusual element that, uh, hap- that occurs in asteroids but isn't really common on the earth. And so this, what seemed like a completely crazy theory actually turned out to be true. And it turned out 65 million years ago, there was this asteroid that hit the Earth near the Gulf of Mexico, I guess, um, and uh, sort of threw up um, a bunch of, of dust. So this is kind of relevant if you're, if you're interested in kind of um, uh, global warming, climate change, things like that. The fact that it's possible to have a bunch of dust thrown into the upper atmosphere that will cover the sun and cool things down is kind of interesting. It's kind of bad if you're a dinosaur and you don't get to, uh, you know, make a fire and keep warm and so on. Um, but uh, that's um, that's kind of the uh, uh, 
uh, seems to have been the story of what happened. And, and it's interesting that there have been, at several times in the history of the Earth, there have been these asteroid impacts. Um, it's uh, 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 something, uh, these days, one of the questions is, can we tell if there's going to be an asteroid that collides with the Earth? And there are various efforts to watch for asteroids. It's, it's actually an interesting math problem, because you see an asteroid, it's on a certain orbit, you have to compute you have to solve these differential equations to work out, you know, will the asteroids orbit in fact intersect with the orbit of the Earth? Um, and it's possible to do that these days, and we'll know if there's any uh, serious risk of that. The question of what you do, whether you can go and uh, send a spacecraft and nudge the asteroid a little bit out of the way, um, there's uh, pretty decent evidence that that should be possible. Um, so I don't think, uh, we're not gonna have an asteroid, I don't think. Um, uh, cause us trouble. But there were other kinds of questions that came up, like it seemed like, if you look at the history of life on Earth, there seem to have been these periodic extinctions that have happened, where a large fraction of species that existed went extinct. And one of them happened at this KT boundary, the Cretaceous tertiary boundary, um, 65 million years ago. There were other ones that had happened previously. There was one, I think, in the Cambrian period, 250 million years ago, maybe, um, that was fairly dramatic. And possibly, they're all associated with asteroid impacts. And there was sort of a theory for a while that I don't think turned out to be correct, that maybe there are sort of just a whole crowd of asteroids that are sort of orbiting around in the solar system, and that every so often, every 60 million years or something, that there'd be a bunch of them near the Earth. That doesn't seem to be true. It seems to be more of a random kind of thing. Okay, what is a virus? Why don't we have medicines for viruses? Why do uh, um, only vaccines, whereas for bacteria, we have antibiotics? Okay, let me try and explain that. Okay, so, uh, you know, we are multicellular organisms. We have lots of cells in our bodies. We have about, I think it's about 100 trillion cells in our body. Um, there are much simpler organisms which have just one cell. So bacteria are an example of single cell of organisms that effectively have, um, uh, they're, they're sort of freestanding organisms that are um, a, a sort of single biological cell. And um, we, uh, 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 in fact, we kind of coexist with lots of bacteria um, in, our, in our gut, for example, we've got tons of bacteria. It's always interesting when you talk to scientists who study uh, different kinds of organisms, um, they're very fond of pointing out, if you talk to people who study um, uh, microorganisms like bacteria, they're very fond of pointing out that the total number of bacterial cells in a typical human is larger than the total number of human cells in the human. We have more bacterial cells living in us than we have cells of our own uh, of our own body. But um, and then when you talk to people who study virology, they say, "Oh, but but compared to the bacteria, the the the, uh, the microbiology people studying bacteria, you've got to realize we have even more viruses in us than there are bacteria in us." But okay, so a bacterium is is a freestanding organism that can replicate on its own. Um, and uh, so every, I don't know how often it is, every maybe couple of hours, some bacterium will split in two and you'll, it'll, it'll make a, a copy of the bacterium. And uh, you know, in general, the way life on Earth works, one, one common theme of all life on Earth is it all uses, well, it mostly uses DNA, it all uses RNA. These are molecules, so, so in us, for example, uh, DNA, is the molecule that kind of specifies how all of our cells should work. It's kind of like a program. Um, it's a program that has about six billion 
uh, letters in it, six billion base pairs. So if you, for example, I, uh, you can get your genome sequenced, um, you can find out what all those six billion base pairs for you are. So back in 2010 or something, I got my genome sequenced and uh, I was one of the fairly early humans to do that. Um, it was kind of fun because, you know, you get back this very ceremonial disk drive that um, is like, here is your genome. This is you, so to speak. This is the six billion base pairs that specify, uh, well, specify most of what it needs to make you. You actually need some, some other tissue that is, that is sort of uh, passed down through the species as well as the actual pure DNA. But anyway, so, so we're specified by about six billion base pairs. Um, and uh, every, every different organism has a different, every different person has slightly different DNA. Every different organism has substantially different DNA, although it's kind of embarrassing how much DNA we share with even very low organisms. And you, know, you might think things like the longer your DNA, the more sophisticated an organism you are, but that's not true. I think potatoes have really long, they're plants with really long um, DNA sequences. And I think crabs also have really long DNA sequences, possibly because they don't use some uh, quite, the, they don't use all the letters in the genetic code as much as we do. But in any case, so uh, bacteria uh, sort of freely replicating organisms. What was discovered in the 1920s, 1930s, was that there are chemicals that will just kill bacteria and don't harm our ordinary cells. Bacterial cells are called prokaryotic cells. Our cells are called eukaryotic cells. Um, there, are, there are chemicals. The first one that was discovered was penicillin. Um, and uh, the, uh, uh, was sort of discovered by chance. Um, but uh, what, what does penicillin do? Well, penicillin is an example of an antibiotic, um, a bacterium attacking uh, medicine. And what penicillin in particular does is the, the, the cell walls of bacteria are slightly differently set up than the cell walls of, of uh, our mammalian cells. And penicillin is really bad for the cell walls of bacteria. It just basically destroys them and the bacteria kind of explode, um, and, but it doesn't hurt our cells. And so that's why, um, that's, that's how uh, those antibiotics work, is they, they, they have features that attack bacterial cells but leave our cells unharmed. Um, and, that's, um, and, and different antibiotics attack different features of, of bacteria. And one of the problems is that just as life on Earth has kind of evolved to have different kinds of organisms and so on, so bacteria evolve. And it's, it's, a, uh, it's always a challenge to get antibiotics that will sort of kill the latest bacteria because the bacteria that evolve, particularly in hospitals, tend to evolve specifically to kind of avoid being attacked by the, by the antibiotics that exist. But that's kind of roughly how, how bacteria work. Now, viruses have a different scheme. Viruses are kind of just sort of pure program. They're just DNA or RNA. In the case of the coronavirus, it's an RNA virus. So D DNA is the sort of basic program that gets replicated in all the cells in our bodies. Um, RNA is kind of an intermediary molecule that is kind of like a half of a DNA molecule um, that is part of the process of going, of actually using the program. Because you know, we have these six billion base pairs, but what do they actually do? Well, what they do is they say how to build all the stuff that's going to turn into muscle and bone and, and skin and all these different things that we have uh, in our bodies. 
And the way that works is in those 6 billion base pairs, there are about maybe 30,000 genes. Each of those genes is like a little function, little, little uh, tiny program. And one of those genes might be the gene that makes a particular thing that's relevant for, I don't know, like, uh, I don't know, uh, rhodopsin or something, which is a, a, a protein that is associated with uh, uh, how, you, um, how you sense light in your eyes. But each, uh, so we're made of the, the main stuff that makes us up is a bunch of protein molecules, um, which are long, long molecules that, uh, and, the, and what the, the, the sort of the, the blueprint, the specification of these proteins is given by the program that exists on the DNA. And so when, when we make things for ourselves, so to speak, uh, all the time, we're making new cells, like our, our skin flakes off and we make new skin cells and so on. The specification of how those cells work is given by the program in our DNA, and that gets activated. Different parts of that program get activated, and there'll be a part that's for making the, the proteins, the molecules that make up pieces of skin, and that part will get activated for our skin cell to make a skin cell, and um, uh, that's how we that's how we make pieces of ourselves from our DNA, from the, from the program essentially in our DNA. Now, okay, viruses have a, have, a, have a thing that they figured out to do. What they do is they say they've got a program too, and their program is all about making some proteins for virus and making more virus. And what they do is they try to get our cells, they try to hijack our cells and get our cells to make their, their RNA or their proteins instead of the things that we should be making for ourselves. So a typical virus will go, it, it's, it's got to have a bunch of tricks because it's got to, the virus is just floating around outside our cells. Our cells have, have the sort of membrane skins around them and the virus has to figure out sort of how to get inside the cell and how to get all the way to the point where it can use the, 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 the sort of apparatus that exists, the molecular apparatus that exists inside cells and kind of get that molecular apparatus making its proteins or its RNA instead of ours. And that's what viruses do to us, is they get into our cells um, and they start producing copies of the virus or other kinds of things rather than letting those cells do what they should have done. So the way that uh, we get rid of viruses is uh, our cells are constantly uh, looking at kind of what's inside the, um, the cell, and they're trying to expose little pieces of proteins and RNA and things on the surface of the cell. And then our immune system goes around and checks our cells and tries to make sure that our cells only have the right little program fragments exposed on their surface. It's really a tricky thing. It's an interesting piece of math. The, um, it takes only uh, the, in the, 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 the program, the genetic code that's in our DNA has these uh, four kinds of things, A, G, C, and T. Um, and uh, it doesn't take a very long sequence of A, G, C, and T before you can say that sequence never occurs in, in you. And that's kind of what your immune system is doing is it's saying, that's a thing that I don't expect. That's a thing that shouldn't be there. Let me go attack it. And so the way that works, there's a whole collection of these, these things called B cells and T cells and so on. It's kind of one of the things that I find interesting when I learned biology when I was a kid um, it was, there are two kinds of blood cells, red blood cells and white blood cells. Well, now I go look at the biology literature and it's like, there aren't just white blood cells, there are T cells, there are B cells, there are CD8 plus T cells, there are, there's just a whole giant zoo of different kinds of cells in our blood. 
Um, the white blood cells are the main ones that are associated with the immune system. And the immune system is a pretty complicated thing. Um, but basically what happens is the, um, uh, uh, it notices that there are things that are not part of, that shouldn't be there, that aren't part of your human genome. And um, sometimes, so, so what happens when you're a kid, um, particularly think of the thymus gland, is responsible for kind of training your immune system to say what's, what's you and what's not you. And what it's going to do is it's going to say, if it ever sees some sequence that isn't a you sequence, go attack it. If it sees a sequence that is a you sequence, it's like, okay, that's fine, no problem. Um, when you get uh, allergies, autoimmune diseases, what's happening is that it got a little bit hyperactive and decided that it would go, go after things which actually are you kinds of things. Um, and you have to kind of uh, uh, persuade it not to do that. But, um, uh, but, but in any case, in the, usually when it's attacking something like a virus, what happens is the virus infects the cell. The cell conveniently is exposing some information about what's going on inside the cell on the surface. The immune system notices it's the wrong thing that's happening there. It marks the cell. And then eventually other cells come along. I think it's the killer T cells, if I remember correctly, come along and actually uh, the, the cells that have been marked as being something's going wrong with the cell, it will get rid of them and, uh, and, and will also get rid of the virus. So what happens when, when we get sick with a virus, we mount an immune response, we generate antibodies, we generate um, our immune system gets activated, we start noticing, oh, there's something bad going on, let's go send in a bunch of cells to go attack the attacker, so to speak. And what happens is when, when we get sick like that, we get left over with a, um, uh, a collection of, of some of these B cells that contain um, kind of um, uh, keep a memory of, uh, um, uh, of things of attackers that we saw. And when we, when we have that memory of an attacker that we saw, the immune system can get triggered and go to work much more efficiently. So if we ever see that same attacker again, our immune system is primed and we can go attack it um, and go get rid of it. And you can actually measure uh, these immunoglobulins, which are part of the, the uh, which are the, the antibodies and things in the immune system. You can actually measure if you've ever been sick with some particular disease, you will be able to find antibodies to that disease in you for the rest of your life, kind of recording, uh, sort of waiting for uh, part of the system that kind of waits for going to attack that disease if you need to ever attack that disease again. So that's kind of how we, how we get immunity to things is our immune system is primed to go attack that disease because we have these antibodies and this whole, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but we have basically things that record the sequences of the attacker and say, if you ever see this sequence again, uh, mount an attack as quickly as possible. Okay, so um, the, and the, the reason that we can't, um, uh, we can't use something like antibiotics against viruses is that it's the viruses have got into our own cells. So antibiotics uh, attack the whole cell that is the bacterium. In the case of a, a virus, it's our own cell that was infected by that virus. Um, and so the, uh, the way, so there are some, uh, a few drugs that are antiviral drugs, and antiviral drugs try to target uh, aspects of the, um, uh, of the way that cells that are helping virus, well, the way that viruses uh, work 
or the way that cells help viruses, and they try and make it so that it's more difficult for the cells to help viruses. So like uh, remisivir, I think, is the, the name of uh, one drug that might be active against the coronavirus, against the, the COVID-19 uh, um, uh, disease. And um, it, uh, I think it targets the uh, RNA, um, uh, it targets some aspect and now I'm, I'm getting out of my depth here, it targets some aspect of the way the initiation of RNA, of transcription of RNA in the for the viral RNA, I think. Um, but so in other words, it's trying to find some aspect of the way that cells work that's different between cells that are where it's doing viruses, the viruses work versus our work. I might mention, you know, this, this nasty virus, um, it's a very little thing. It's 29,000 base pairs is its complete genome. So we're at 6 billion base pairs. It's at 29,000 base pairs. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's trying to just get as many copies as possible of those 29,000 base pairs. Um, uh, but uh, um, uh, that, and that's, that's kind of what's happening there. So um, just oh, to mention how vaccines work. So the basic idea of a vaccine is to, without you ever getting the disease, to have you kind of primed so that your immune system is all ready to jump into action if that disease ever shows up. So how do you do that? Well, you have to basically get your immune system to record, to get, to create uh, antibodies and related things um, associated with what would be an attack from that disease without you getting the disease. So the way vaccines work is they take typically some piece of a virus um, and because, because if you're going to get the virus, you get, you, the whole virus is going to be in you. So even if it's just the coating outside the virus that your immune system recognizes and says, if ever I see that coating, go attack it, that's enough. Um, you, uh, in very early vaccines, it was like a whole virus that might even have been alive, but nowadays it's, it's like pieces of viruses and dead viruses and so on. Um, and, uh, but, but so the, the real problem of, vir of, of vaccines is how to get the immune system to really mount a serious response and to kind of record the information about the disease without, without you actually getting the disease. Now, when you, with a vaccine, because the vaccine doesn't contain any actual virus that can replicate, you couldn't get the disease from the vaccine. But the problem is how to get the vaccine, how to get the vaccine to sort of tell your immune system, go pay as much attention to this as you would when you actually got the disease. And the way that works is that vaccines have these things, I think it's called the adjuvant, which is a, an additional substance that is uh, sort of mixed in with the actual sort of fragments of, of uh, virus, um, virus parts and so on. It's mixed in and uh, it, when, when you're injected with a vaccine, that adjuvant is the thing that says to your immune system, hey, something important is going on here. Come pay attention to this. And so then your immune system will come and say, oh, this is important. Let's parade a bunch of cells past here and get them to record what's going on. And, and, and it will have an enhanced response. Your immune system will enhance its response. And that's why it kind of gets to, to get a memory of, um, uh, of, of what, what happened, even though you didn't fully have the disease. So that, that's kind of how vaccines work. And the, the, the tricky things come about 
often in the way that that adjuvant works and, and what other effects that produces and things, there are tricky things there, and that's why it can take a while to develop vaccines that are safe. Okay, next question was, are viruses alive? Well, I think I explained a little bit of that. So viruses have, so this particular virus, the coronavirus is an RNA virus, and it doesn't have any possibility of being sort of, the only way it gets to, uh, to do lifelike things like replicate itself um, is by having a host whose cells it can get to do that replication for them. And that, that's why if we can get few enough people, if we can get down to no cases of this virus, then the virus is going to go extinct. Because after any particular person, uh, after their immune system mounts a, a vigorous enough defense to kill off the virus in them, uh, unless the virus has jumped to another person, the virus is toast. It can't, um, it can't do any more because it, it can only survive if it has a host in which to get its... Uh, uh, in which to get copies of itself made. So the question here is, is a dead virus the virus with part of its protein removed? It, it's, it's a virus with its replication mechanism removed. Um, I actually don't know the precise definition of a dead virus for purposes of vaccines, but, but the main thing, the main, main point about it is it does not have what it takes to be able to infect and replicate in cells. The question here, why is the human brain so mushy you mean physically, or I'm happy to say I've never physically seen one. I'm, I, I would be totally squeamish. Um, although I, that is, is what I hear, that, that they're, I think, um, you know, they're like, like the rest of us, they've got lots of fluid in them. Um, is it necessary for the operation of the brain? Um, I think that it is important to take those neurons, those neurons have to be powered somehow. And um, having, you know, the way we have to, um, uh, you know, they have to get, um, uh, you know, they have to have blood supply, they have to have other things coming to them. In the end, the neurons are going to act electrically. The neurons are like little, they have the equivalent of little tiny batteries that um, are what cause them to produce the, the little pulses of electricity that are presumably what make up um, the way that brains work. I mean, it's still not completely clear how brains work, but although it's becoming a little clearer because we have artificial analogs of them, in the neural nets that are part of sort of modern artificial intelligence, um, and uh, it's um, and and we know that there's a network of you know in human brains maybe a um, uh, hundred trillion, uh, no, there are about um, maybe a, a trillion or so uh, neurons with maybe a hundred or a thousand times that many connections. The neurons are these very tree-like looking things, and they have these connections between them, and probably our memories are associated with little tiny pieces of uh, things like calcium that are in the, in the actual uh, synapses, the connections between neurons, probably the pattern of, uh, of, of strengths of those connections is what stores our memories. And that's also what stores the memories and the artificial neural nets that we make in, in AI and so on. Um, and that's, uh, um, and they're, they're um, uh, that, I mean, that's the, that's the most common theory for how, how brains work. Um, is that that's how memory is, is stored. There are other theories that um, uh, are still conceivable, but I think are much less likely. Okay, so there's a question here um, about did humans evolve from monkeys? Um, okay, so the first statement to make is there's this whole phenomenon of, uh, of evolution 
there's this whole tree of life that's existed on Earth. And maybe it started, I don't know, two and a half billion years ago, maybe, um, that the first living organisms uh, existed. And ever since then, we've been, and, and the, even from the very beginning, probably, well, probably not the very, very first living organisms, but uh, fairly soon, uh, DNA, this molecule that uh, is essentially gives us the program that specifies how to build an organism. Pretty soon, organisms started using DNA to specify the program that would be used to build them. And like, you know, our DNA has 6 billion base pairs, essentially 6 billion, well, 6 billion times 2 bits of information um, that specify how to build us. And they specify how our cells should make, uh, should turn our food into proteins and, and make, uh, make everything that's us. Um, okay, so back in the, you know, when, when, when life first evolved on Earth, probably it didn't actually use DNA. Probably it used, I don't know, there's some theories that it used things in clay and clays and other, other kinds of ways to sort of keep information about how it should be built. But roughly what's happened is that over the course of time, the program for building life, for building organisms, has gradually been refined and refined and refined and refined and refined. And every time there's a new generation of organisms, their programs are a little bit different than their parents' programs. And what happens, there's this phenomenon called natural selection that was discovered in the uh, about a century and a half ago now, um, that uh, by Charles Darwin, um, and with various input from other people. But, but um, uh, again, don't get me started. I'm talking about history of science. I can give you a long, long disc discussion about that. But let's stay to, stick to the point. So what is natural selection? So there are... Each organism is specified by a program. The children of the organism get programs that differ just a little bit from the, the programs of their parents. In the case of us humans and organisms that have sexual reproduction, we always get a mixture of the programs from our mother and our father. And so like with humans, we have 23 chromosomes and um, the um, uh, each, in each one of those, there'll be stretches that are your father's DNA, your mother's DNA, and so on. They're usually about, I think it's five or six crossovers per chromosome. So you'll get, you know, if you have siblings, for example, you'll be able to see, oh, that section of chromosome five, we both got that from our father, for example. Um, and uh, then it will cross over and you'll get it from the other parent and so on. Um, and because the program on the DNA is so jumbled up, it's not the case. It's not a well-organized program, so to speak. So you know, like the, the piece of the program that might encode how you know, eye color, how one part of our eye color works, maybe on a completely different chromosome from the part that encodes how another part of our eye color works. And so it's not the case that just because you, know, you have sort of sections of DNA that come from one parent or another, it doesn't mean that the traits are necessarily very correlated. But in any case, the, um, uh, so different organisms gradually as as you um, uh, you compared to your parents have slightly different DNA. One reason for that is because of this uh, phenomenon of the mixing of DNA from from sexual reproduction. Another feature is that when DNA is um, is uh, replicated, there are some errors in replication, and those errors, some of those errors are corrected by uh, proofreading enzymes and things, but some are not. 
And so each of us probably has about 700,000 uh, unique um, base pairs, unique places on our DNA that nobody else got, that they're just completely unique to us. Okay, so then what happens? Well, over the course of time, some of those unique mutations, some of those mutations will turn out to be a really good idea. So for example, I don't know, let's pick, uh, gosh, uh, let's not go for humans. Let's go for, um, let's go for the classic thing that Darwin studied, which was a type of bird that had different shapes of beak. Um, and uh, so and he looked at birds on the Galapagos Islands and the different islands there. And on some islands, uh, the, uh, there was, what was it? Some kinds of seeds, I guess, that existed where if you had a particular shape of beak, you'd be more successful at, at cracking open that seed. I may have that slightly wrong, what the actual different functionalities of these birds is, but roughly that. Um, and that's certainly one one can imagine. Um, so, you know, if you have a beak of a certain shape, it's going to be really good for cracking open that seed. Okay, if you have that shape of beak, you will be a more successful bird, you will live longer, you will have more children. And so what then happens is that um, uh, the, um, uh, this process of natural selection, of uh, selecting out birds that aren't so successful and selecting in birds that are successful, as that continues through generations, you'll tend to get evolution towards, for example, a bird that has a beak that's really optimized for what it's trying to do. Now, natural selection and evolution can be good and it can be kind of bad. And so, for example, one case where it's bad is in things like viruses, um, they, they have natural selection and evolution as well. Well, let, let me give you the example of bacteria. So one bad example there is antibiotic resistant bacteria. So bacteria, uh, uh, you know, we have antibiotics, antibiotics kill bacteria. But so if you're, an, if you're a bacterium and you're reproducing and uh, you're in a place where there are a bunch of antibiotics and antibiotics kill you, then you won't reproduce. But if you suddenly, by some mutation, manage to be a bacterium that survives the antibiotics, then you'll be the winning bacterium and you'll reproduce and there'll be lots of copies of you. And so that's, that's the thing that happens is that the the the, the, the antibiotic will uh, provide, uh, sort of will force, that will select for bacteria that aren't killed by the antibiotic. And so you'll evolve bacteria that are antibiotic resistant in that case. Okay, so in the history of life on earth, we have um, uh, evolved all kinds of different life forms that uh, are successful in different places. So for example, there's, there's life that lives in volcanoes. There's life that lives, we actually don't know how far down life lives inside the earth, um, but there's life that lives deep, deeper inside the earth. We don't know quite how deep. Um, there's life that lives in very cold places, very hot places, places with this feature, that feature. And those different forms of life, uh, the ones that survive and that are naturally selected for are the ones that because of mutations ended up being successful in those particular environments. Well, back in the time of Charles Darwin, he actually thought that it was a sort of feature of natural selection, that it would force one to have more and more complex organisms, organisms with more and more elaborate features over the course of time. Uh, that turns out not to be true. It is not the case that more elaborate organisms are always more successful organisms. I mean, 
in the situation we're in right now, it'd be really good if that was definitively true because we're, we're significantly more complex organisms than this nasty virus that's attacking us. Um, you know, for example, we have, uh, it's not a great measure of this, but we have 6 billion base pairs for a human. The virus has 29,000 base pairs, very tiny compared to us. Um, but uh, the, um, it, it, so, so Darwin thought that, that gradually life would get more and more complex and that the more successful forms of life would be more complex. That doesn't seem to be the case. Um, you can have quite successful life forms that are quite simple. Um, but uh, so, so then one of the questions is, uh, so another, another question is sort of what evolves from what? And um, uh, you know, are, are we the best life forms that have ever evolved? And how, does that, how do you measure that? And how do you think about that? Um, the, uh, I think the specific question here was, did we evolve from monkeys? The, okay, so first question is, how would you tell? So the way that people used to tell what evolved from what is to just look at the organisms and say, gosh, that, you know, humans look quite a lot like monkeys, uh, you know, zebras look quite a lot like horses, um, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they tried to arrange the tree of life just based on uh, what organisms look like. And there are about roughly 10 million species that are now and now. Um, a large fraction of which are things like uh, beetles that exist in the Amazon rainforest, things like that. Um, but anyway, there, there are many, there are quite few mammalian species now. And I think, ooh, how many are there? Maybe 10,000, maybe less than that, mammalian species that are known. Um, the uh, so quite, quite small number. Uh, but um, in any case, of all these different species that are known, well, we have, um, so you can try and group them together. You can try and sort of reconstruct this tree of life of what evolved from what by just looking at what looks similar to what. And so, you know, one of the things that has been observed is there are fossils which show what, uh, what organisms that have existed in the past looked like. And so we can try and piece together what was the kind of historical tree of life by, by piecing together, well, this fossil looks like this one and looks like this one, and we can try and make a chain going all the way back. And um, sometimes, you know, a lot of fossils, we can make those kinds of chains. There are some wonderful fossils, like from the Cambrian period, uh, let's see, a couple, two, three hundred million years ago, I think, um, that uh, there are fossils from, from well, actually the pre-Cambrian period, um, where they're really weird looking organisms that don't look anything like the organisms we have today. They were kind of things that, in a sense, evolution tried out, and they turned out not to be very good ideas, or at least for whatever historical accidental reason, they didn't make it. So for example, just like we have five fingers and there are a lot of organisms that have five-fold symmetry, there were organisms at that time that had you know, seven-fold symmetry and all kinds of other things. And um, uh, for whatever reason, the, the five-folders won out. Okay, so, so one way that we can tell kind of what evolved from what is just look at the shapes of the organisms and try and sort of piece it together. Another thing that's become possible more recently is to look at the DNA sequences, the programs for these organisms, um, at least the ones that exist today. And sometimes we can get some, um, um, some DNA from, from ancient organisms. There's sort of a hope we might get, um, you know, uh, there's good science fiction from getting dinosaur DNA and things like this um, that hasn't been successfully got yet, but, um, uh, but it might be possible. Um, but we can also just try and deduce from, if, if we know, the DNA of this organism looked like this, and we know it's a small change from the program of one organism to the program of, of uh, the, the organism that was the result of a bunch of mutations from that organism. We can kind of try and piece together this tree of life 
also by looking at the level of programs. So people have tried to do that for humans. I'm not a huge expert on all the things that have been found, um, but it's clear that there were a bunch of species that existed a couple of million years ago. Um, uh, I think modern humans are maybe 50,000 years old or something. Um, but there were a bunch of species that existed and uh, they had different characteristics. Some of them probably only went extinct. I think there's one um, Homo florensis that I think may have existed until 500 years ago. There's a very uh, kind of um, uh, hobbit-sized uh, human-like organism um, that, uh, um, and, and there were also Neanderthals, Neanderthals, which were different species, uh, the Denisovans, which were another species. I think there's actually very recently, the last couple of months, there's a, there's a discovery in Africa of probably a signs of a yet another species. Um, and all these different species were pretty similar. And um, they, uh, they, they interbred. And in fact, for example, for us, like we have signatures of, of, of the Neanderthal species, for example, in us, I think, um, uh, blue eyes, for example, I think are one of the contributions of Neanderthals to, to modern humans and so on. So we can kind of try and piece together uh, what came from different species and, and how that worked. Um, but so that's, uh, um, and it's, it's always a question of when, when there were particular sort of innovations that were made in, in history, like, you know, what species first had language? What species first made art? And you know, there's a, that's a thing that's actually pretty actively discussed these days of, you know, did the Neanderthals make art? Did they have, what kind of language did they have? It's, it's often hard to tell. You know, you can look at the vocal tracts and things like that, the, 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 um, the structures inside the kind of the throats and things and skeletons of these, of these organisms. And you can try and guess, did they, have, did they have the kind of thing it would take to have, you know, to make different, different sounds and so on. I'm not sure that's a totally convincing way to do it. Um, if you're lucky, you'll find a cave painting or something or an artifact. It's, it's even that's a hard business, too, because the artifacts that we find, like, like flint napping, one of those things that I suppose got taught in school um, back, uh, you know, 10,000 years ago, but it's kind of been lost since then. It's like, how do you take a flint piece of, piece of rock? And you just keep knock, knock, knock on the flint, and eventually you can make it sharp. And that's a good thing if you're trying to make an arrowhead. And so back in the day, uh, you know, in ancient history of our species, um, you know, that was, a, that was a, a super useful skill is how to make, um, you know, how to make sharp points out of flints. Um, and, uh, but, you know, if you find a, um, an arrowhead that was uh, made with flint napping, it's pretty hard to tell that, you know, it's a, it's a we, we, okay, we know how flint napping works because kind of flint napping sort of survived until modern times. But if we found some rock that was, you know, seemed to be chipped away in some weird shape, to know that that was something that was done purposefully by some distant ancestor of ours is a tough thing. It's a tough thing to know. You know, did they, like, like we know from, you know, archaeology and things like that, um, we know um, uh, what... Um, uh, when we look at um, sort of ancient monuments, we say, what was this for? And it's often hard to tell. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.